Hey, well, thank you, Kevin. And I hope you've enjoyed the worship team so far, the VBS group. I mean, they've been, they've been great. Yeah, let's give them another round of applause here. They were awesome. We had a little bit of a beat going on this morning. I don't know if we know how to handle that, but we did a pretty good job with the whole beat thing. That was awesome. That was great. Um, well, I enjoyed uh, this summer so far for me. I hope you've had a good summer so far. One of the highlights of my summer so far has been being with 34 other people in the Dominican Republic. And this group of people up here on the screen behind me, all 35 of us went to the DR and survived, uh, living with one another for a week. You're going to hear more about that report in a couple weeks, I think on August the 4th. But the reason I bring it up now is to talk about some of the advantages of being on a team with 35 people. One of them is um, if you don't actually want, want to volunteer for what someone needs, if you wait long enough, certainly someone else will sign up for the thing that you don't really actually want to do. Uh, actually, in truth, what I learned on this team is that and something that many of you I've heard said to me over the years, and that is... Um, sometimes when you're expecting your first child and your kid is born, you realize just how selfish you actually are as a human being when all of a sudden there's another human being uh, in your home. And I learned that again on this trip, just how selfishness um, rises to the surface pretty quickly within me and the need to continue to fight that. I remember Thursday evening, I think it was, um, our hosts there at the, what they called the Mac House, the house we stayed at at Macarios, their organization's named Macarios, the hosts would provide meals for us all the time, which is a lot to do. And, and one day on Thursday, I think it was Thursday, people spent all day preparing a meal. And so they really kind of built up this meal. And they said, hey, as we're getting ready, we just want you to know our, our, our help here, they make, like, they've made Haitian mashed potatoes for you that you are not going to want to miss. I'm like, yeah. Like, I mean, I never, I mean, when's the last time you've had Haitian mashed potatoes? You know what I mean? I came all the way to the DR. So like, if you're telling me these things are awesome, like I want them. And then the same thought goes through my mind of like, oh shoot, like I'm a leader on this team. That means that I get to stand in the back of the line and let 34 other people get in front of me to get the mashed potatoes. And the immediate instinct went through my mind is like, I hope there's enough. Or is there a way for me to sneak in, maybe just kind of come in, like side talk to somebody and get in a line around number 11, you know, something, you know, three would be too much, but 11 might be appropriate. And it was interesting to me how quickly the selfishness instinct kicks in of like, I want to get the potatoes for me. Like, I hope I have enough. And I hope that the people who eat a lot, like they don't go before me, because if they do, I don't think any potatoes left. It's so funny, isn't it? And I found that in Instinctively throughout the week, this, this, this little voice, this little movement of, hey, it's time to get in the vans, and we have, you know, four or five vans show up for all of us, and like, I frankly didn't want to get stuck in the seat next to our Dominican driver that was about six inches wide, and then next to, like, Kevin, who was there, and so big Kevin, big me, and big driver with a six-inch, like, jump seat in there, like, I, can I load myself in earlier so I don't have to get the worst seat on the bus? Same thing when we went to soccer camps. I remember getting out at soccer camp, and it was the day where we had to um, you know, support the Dominicans who were playing soccer, and our job was to, to chase down the balls that they kick wherever they kick. And you look out on the field, and it's already 114 degrees at 9 in the morning, right? And there's several spots in the field that have zero shade to them. It's like it's already on fire out there, you know? And I'm like, ooh, I hope that someone else takes that spot so I, as a leader, don't have to stand in the sun for the next three hours because it's me. Like, I, I don't want to. One of the things I realize when you go on a trip like that is it doesn't take long for those instincts to kind of fight with me, at least. 
And I realize that as we get older, we don't actually get better at this. We just kind of tend to rationalize this thing that's in all of us that we tend to call selfishness. And we rarely call it selfishness in truth. Like I, if you can track with me on this, sometimes I get home at the end of a work day and um, you know, I've been tired. Started early, been a full day, demanding day, and I get home and by the time I'm done, I frankly don't feel like taking the trash. I don't feel like doing the dishes. I don't feel like having one because I don't feel like taking someone somewhere going to pick somebody up somewhere. And so it doesn't take long for me to say, listen, I'm just tired. The truth is, I'm just selfish. But it sounds a lot better to say I'm tired than it sounds to say I'm selfish. I don't know if you struggle with this at all, but if you struggle at all to take vacation, or when you're on vacation to be away, truly unplugged with your family on vacation, you could simply say, well, I'm working hard. Like, my job demands that I'm here and I'm available. That may be true. But it also could be that, frankly, you need the rush, the adrenaline rush that, that comes with the feeling of feeling productive, that your self-confidence is linked to your work, that in truth it's really a selfish need that you have to deny your family the time that they need with you. And we don't call it selfishness. We just call it hard work. We call it something else. We, we disguise what actually is in, in our hearts. And I, and I love the way that John Bloom wrote about this problem of selfishness. He put it this way, and it was really well said. He said, our selfishness is a master of disguise, wearing a thousand masks to cover its motives. Our, our selfishness is a, a wordsmith, bending and shaping and sometimes twisting rationales for why our preferences are reasonable and right and even righteous and, of course, best. Our selfishness is an attorney trained from childhood in both defense and prosecution, bent on persuading judge and jury on behalf of its sole client. Now, why would I talk this morning about selfishness? Why do I want to talk about this? And here's the reason. The reason I want to talk about selfishness is, number one, in this series called Trust Me, I want to look not just at Abraham. We're looking at the story of Abraham for six weeks. I want to look at Abraham, but Abraham has a man who tracks along with his life. And Abraham has a man who shows up in his narrative in the Old Testament book of Genesis, whose story I want to actually highlight. And it's actually his nephew, Lot. Lot is someone who shows up in Abraham's story, kind of goes away and comes right back again. And Lot's story teaches me something, and I hope it will teach you something about how we see selfishness come in and how, in particular, selfishness relates to trust and relates to faith. Now, let me define selfishness. Let me explain the connection here in one of my aha moments as I'm preparing this. Selfishness, to be clear, selfishness is an excessive focus on myself looking for my advantage without regard for others. When I'm using the word selfishness this morning, I don't mean that any time that you prioritize you, you're being selfish. I don't mean that you should live without margin and that you should live giving of every piece of energy you have to other people and just burn out with what other people demand from you. That you should become essentially a reflection of other people's expectations and demands of your life. That's not what I mean by selfishness. Selfishness, I mean, it, you can have your own morning cup of coffee, you can have your exercise routine, you can have your routines that you need to do to maintain your sanity, but selfishness becomes an excessive focus on that, and, and an excessive focus on me. I must have this now. I don't care what this does to you, I don't care what it does to anyone else, I must have this, and I will likely not change my habits or routines very much at all because of this. I must have my fatigue. I must have my mashed potatoes. I must have a spot in the shade. I must, 
I must because I need them. Now, here's what I've learned, and here's why I want to talk about selfishness. Because selfishness, believe it or not, here's what I think about selfishness. Selfishness actually reinforces fear. Selfishness reinforces fear, and here's what I mean. I was afraid there wouldn't be enough mashed potatoes, therefore get me in the front of the line. I was afraid I'd be too hot, therefore find me a spot in the shade on the field so I don't have to stand there. I'm afraid that if I go and do something that is a demand on my time, I'm not going to have the energy, I'm not going to have the space to recoup and be sharp for the day tomorrow. Like The fear of the things that I do not have, when I choose selfishness, it reinforces that, yes, indeed, you should live a fear-based life. You shouldn't actually trust that God's standards are better than yours. So conversely, selflessness reinforces faith. And this to me was an aha moment as I'm even preparing, looking at Lot's life, that selfishness is not just a bad thing, a bad character thing. Selfishness actually reinforces a fear-based life. And selflessness says there's something here higher than my ideals. Selflessness says God may have something to say about how I spend my time and how I see my world, and I should give attention to that over my interests. I may not get mashed potatoes, but it's possible that by waiting to be number 35 in line, I have the opportunity to honor this team and to have a conversation with someone I never would have had had I been number one in line. Maybe there's something bigger here, and maybe... Maybe, even though I'm afraid that I'm not going to get what I want, God might have something else for me. So this is a story of Lot. This is a story of Lot versus Abraham. And to show that to you, we're going to go into the text of Genesis this morning. We're going to start in Genesis 13. I will tell you, it gets a little PG-13 along the way, but it is the Bible. We're going to stay on the Bible. So just so you know, that's kind of where that's going. But Genesis chapter 13, it's the first book in the Old Testament, which is the first part of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you that's our gift to you. But Genesis 13, and we're going to start from the beginning um, of that chapter, seeing what's going on with our friend Abe and our friend Lot. All right? So, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything that he had, and Lot went with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving with Abram, also had flocks and tents, flocks and herds and tents, excuse me. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's, and the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. All right, that makes sense. There's not enough land and too many people were fighting over resources. Fair enough. So Abram, verse 8, said to Lot, notice again, quick as we're reading, that Abram is the one taking leadership. He's the one recognizing the problem. He's the one now who's going to be offering a solution. He's being an active leader in this spot. He said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before us? Let's part company. I will take the best part since I have more money than you do, and you can take the worst part since you have less money than I do. Right. He says, let's part company. If you, if you decide to go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you decide to go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot, you decide. You decide. Not me decide, you decide. There's land here. Lot, you decide. 
Even though Abram was older, he was the uncle, he gives his nephew the opportunity to decide. And so Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the worst part of the plain of the Jordan and gave to Abram the best. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. And the two men parted company. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord, but that didn't matter because the garden there was nice. I added that part. So here's the opening scene of Lot's life, and we're just going to skip through a couple of segments of Lot's life. He has the opportunity to choose what he's going to do, and, and I don't know what's in Lot's mind, but you can imagine that on the flip side of looking out and seeing this beautiful land, on the flip side, he would have to think, oh, wow, this is amazing here to the left, and if I choose to the right, it won't be as amazing, and if I choose that, I will miss what's here. I'll be afraid to give up the things that look great for what might not be so great, and so Lot just straight up chooses the best for himself. It's as simple as that. Abram, you're going to give me a choice? Thank you. I'm going to have all the potatoes, all of them right now. They're mine. Appreciate it. You have a good time with where you're going and hope your life ends up well. You know the story with Abram that he actually, his life is incredibly, incredibly successful. And the truth is that success follows Abraham not because of the land that he chose, but because of the character that he has. So to fast forward through some of Lot's story, Lot ends up settling in Sodom and Gomorrah. And and uh, what happens in the next couple chapters, particularly in chapter 14, is that, that Lot ends up getting captured. There are some kings who come together, actually an alliance of kings, who come to fight with one another. And, and I don't know how that all went down, but there was uh, some fighting there, and Lot was actually taken prisoner. Lot and his family were taken prisoner. They were removed from where they decided to go. And Abram was called upon, and he was, someone told him, hey, Abram, Lot has been taken captive. So Abram takes 318 of his trained men. And Abram goes and takes on an alliance of kings, kills them all, gets Lot back, puts him back where he was, says, here you go, Lot, here's the opportunity again to reestablish your life. And Lot settles back down in Sodom and Gomorrah. Later, into chapter 18 and then into chapter 19, and you can start turning to chapter 19 as I tell you what's happening. Later, Two angels come to visit Abraham. And as they come to visit him, as you can almost imagine, there's actually three visitors, but two of them are angels. You can almost imagine Abram sitting over an overlook, looking down into the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah would be. And they're having dinner, and they've prepared a feast for these guests. And Abram begins hearing, he hears from the angel of the Lord, hears from the Lord himself, and and the Lord says to him, Abram, The stench of Sodom and Gomorrah has risen up to my nostrils. The sin of that city is grotesque. I'm going to destroy them. And and Abram decides that he's going to negotiate with God. And he says, well, far be it from me to put you in your spot, but would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 who were righteous in that city? To which God said, nope. Abram, I'd give you your wish. If there's 50 I could find, I wouldn't do it. And then Abram's like, well, let me push my luck a little bit, God. If, if it doesn't bother you, if I could ask you for 45, would you do it for 45? I said, Abram, for 45, I'd do it. And then he goes, 
If you don't mind, let me ask one more time, can we do 40? And God says, okay, Abram, 40. And actually, Abram keeps going, and we go from 30, and then 20, and then finally uh, land on 10. And Abram says, God, for, for 10 people, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, no, for the sake of 10 people, I wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then that scene kind of closes, and the two angels, if you will, they, they walk, imagine them walking down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and they get to the city gates, And it's there at the city gates that we pick up this story in chapter 19, verse 1. That the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and with this pending doom and destruction in their minds. And and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And that's where men do business, by the way. So he was sitting in the gateway of the city where people transact business. And so when he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Uh, No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. Now, Lot knows that's a terrible, terrible idea. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and they entered his house and he prepared a meal for them, which was nice, baking bread without yeast and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And then he says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. But my daughters haven't. But these men have. Now here's Lot again, afraid of what could be. And what's he willing to do? In order to preserve my name, in order to preserve myself... I'm going to just go ahead and, and give to you, I'm going to give to you my two daughters. What a brilliant idea, Lot. I cannot imagine the world in which this is something that ever comes across the mind of a father. I know it's a different culture, a different way of living, and so I need to acknowledge that, but I cannot imagine a world in which one is so driven by this fear that one doesn't get up and lead in this space and say, you would have to kill me first before you come in for anyone in my family. But Lot, driven by fear for his life, I would argue, makes a decision that will preserve him and preserve the people who are most important to him in the house, these two guests whom he entertained, to the detriment of his own daughters. What happens next is, I don't have it here, but the angels pull him back into the house and they strike the men blind. I'm not going to read all that, but that's what happens next, that the men outside are struck blind and those guys open the door and pull him back in and that crisis moment is, is just postponed momentarily, and then they tell Lot, we are going to destroy this city. Find anyone that you love or know in the city and get them out of here because destruction is coming tonight on the city. So Lot goes to his uh, family's home and, and, uh, and, and, and knocks on the door and says, you know, time to go, to which, I don't know about you, but if I got a knock on the door at like three in the morning and someone said, God's about to destroy this area, you better run with everything you have, I'd be like, dude, are you serious? It's th- can we talk about it in the morning? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is, we read this like, well, why didn't they all run with him? Well, because this is crazy. You know, I mean, when does this happen? 
So there's basically a pushback to Lot and the angels here. We pick it up in verse 15. With the coming of the dawn of chapter, chapter 19, verse 15, with the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who, you, who were here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And then look at verse 16. When he hesitated, Lot, why are you hesitating? Why are you hesitating? Why are you hesitating? You have angels of the Lord who are there with you, and they're telling you, come, get out of the city before we bring destruction, and you're hesitating. You're afraid of what? You're afraid of what? The men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Now let me ask you this question. If you were these two daughters, and you grew up in a home where Lot was your dad, what kind of life do you think you would have? What kind of perspective on the world do you think you would have? Because if it were me, I can imagine growing up in a home with someone like Lot, um, it's me first. It's me first for the land, it's me first for safety, it's me first whatever I need. I'm not sure if God has a voice in my life, it's like, it's me first. It's me first, me first, it's just the way Lot has been. And look what happens next in chapter 19, verse 30. After Lot and his daughters settle down because his wife was turned to a pillar of salt, which is never a good way to end your life, but that's for another day. Chapter 19, verse 30, we read that Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Now, how awesome is that? Would you like to live in a cave? One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. So let's wait on God's timing and pray that he will deliver for us what we need, rather than take matters into our own hands. Right? Verse 32. So let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got their father to drink wine. The older daughter went in and lay with him, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. And verse 34, the next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I lay with my father, let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. And again, he was not aware of it when they lay down, when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites of today. And the younger daughter also had a son. She named him Ben-Ami, and he's the father of the Ammonites of today. And if that ruined your lunch, I apologize. But what do you expect from people who, who were raised by a dad who's saying, me first? Like, I'm not sure that God has a voice in that heart because there's nothing more to trust. All that you trust is what's right in front of you. And here's a problem. I'm going to solve it. We need to carry on our family line, and there is a man there. He happens to be our father, whatever. And so what's Lot's legacy? Lot's legacy is that he's left alone at the end of this story. This is the end of, of Lot's life that we know. I mean, this is the last thing we hear of him. And he was a man who's left all to himself because all he's thought of is himself for his lifetime. Now, things are different. Things are different in the world of Jesus. Things are different in the world of the New Testament. Things are different when we think about how people who call themselves Christian should relate to one another. There actually is a target that we should aim at. There's a way to think about relationships. There's a way to think about trust 
that we should be aiming at. And and I love the way Paul writes it here in Romans chapter uh, 12. And he says this, he kind of gives Christians a target. And the reason this is an interesting target is because it's tied to what Christians also call the new covenant, a new way of relating to God. It is driven exclusively on this concept of loving God and loving one another with everything that we have. Here's Romans 12, verse 10, and Paul writes this. He says, I want you to be devoted to one another in love. I want you to honor one another above yourselves. This is a principle, a target, a name. And so if we run Lot's life through this, Lot, have you been honoring to Abraham above yourself? Have you been honoring to your daughters above yourself? Have you been honoring to the fear of the Lord above the fear of what you might lose if you don't do what you want to do? I would say, no, you haven't. Have I been devoted to my family in love? Have I been devoted to the people who are around me in love that puts them in front of me, that puts you first instead of me first? Have I been targeted that way? I would run Lot's life through this and say, no, I don't see that. And then I would run my life through this and I say, hmm, yep, Lot didn't run this, didn't do this right. <laughs> Be devoted to one another. Here's the target. And then here's what I recognize. I go back to my Dominican uh, illustration that it is within me, and maybe if you're honest, maybe it's within you too, this constant battle or fight between what I want and what God might want. And, and I love how James puts it. He was a brother of Jesus. He said this. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? What is it that really irritates you? What do you think is underneath the stuff that you tend to stress about, the things that you tend to argue about? What do you think causes that? What fights that? And then he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Like, isn't that a, a manifestation of the desire of your heart saying, like, I want the potatoes, I'm going to be 35th in line, I'm going to push in front here and get what I want. I, I want to be in the shade and therefore, boom, you know, isn't it a manifestation of this desire to want my way my way, my way, isn't that a manifestation of that? And then he goes on this way, he says, you desire, he said, let me flesh this out for you. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, except for the killing part mostly, but you're, you're right about that. Now, that's kind of what I see, that this is what, what happens, for me at least. And so here's, here's the, the harsh reality of it for me, is that, that me first, this way of living me first, is actually the, the fastest way to resolve our fears. I don't know if you've thought about it this way before, but if I'm afraid that I'm not going to get what I want, if I'm not going to be able to recharge the way I need to recharge, if I'm not going to get the things that I need, honestly, honestly, me first is the fastest way to resolve the fear that I have. If I'm not afraid I'm going to get the land that Abram will give me, I'm just going to take it. Now I'm not afraid of it anymore. Now I feel like my future is secure. Like if I'm not a, uh, you know, if I can get what I want now, my fear will be resolved. The harsh reality of it is that it's also the fastest way to ruin our lives. That me first is both the fastest way to resolve my fear and consequently ruin my life at the same time. It just goes hand in hand. We cannot separate that. Because selfishness and me first puts my priorities and my agenda, my thought process in the front and says, you're probably right. I mean, I'm not sure God can really give you much more advice. You're probably pretty smart. Just keep doing it the way you're doing it. You're not even afraid when you go to bed. There's nothing to worry about. Then all the while, there's distance that's created. We don't know where in the world it comes from. What happens? And Where did that come from? So here's what I, what I want to say about this. That, that I want to be careful as I talk about this that you understand something here. That, that thinking you first and not me first is not just about being nice. I don't want you just to be nice. I, mean, I don't mind if you're nice. 
But it's actually about developing the discipline to choose trust over fear in all the daily ways that this shows up. This is why this matters to me. It's not just that I want to dispense morality as a church. I want to talk about more in a minute. To me, what I see is that at the intersection of trust and fear is a decision about selfishness or selflessness. It's a decision about, am I going to do the things the way I want to do them or invite God to speak into this the way that I would have him do it? It's about developing the discipline to choose trust over fear and saying, no, you first. No, you, you first, not me first. I want you to imagine for a minute what would happen if you first took place for you. If you're business leader. You know, I had a chance to meet with several business leaders in the past couple of weeks, and one of them said that our priority at our job is to make sure that we know the story of every employee who comes, and our, our goal is to help our employees understand their wiring, understand their future, understand how they function, and set them up for the greatest success. And this business has grown as a result of that. I know that, that um, we have a local, um, a local um, bike shop who is giving to one of their employees, I think it's what, maybe 50 cents a mile to ride to work, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. And the point is, this doesn't help my bottom line, but I'm doing it because I know that you need a resource, like maybe you need to get a new bike. I'm going to give that to you. It doesn't help my bottom line, but you know, you have a need, you first. It doesn't make business sense, but yeah, you first, you first. You know, if you're, uh, you're like me in a marriage, you know, get home, and I've seen my wife do this more than I see myself do it, but you know, she'll come home and, and uh, who needs driven where, what needs cleaned up when, what needs prepared for the next day. It's like, you first, kids, you first, Tim, you first, what the family needs. Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm tired, I'm weary, I could use some rest, right? I mean, this shows up so clearly. I mean, what if it's like, no, no, you first, you first. It happened to me yesterday, and I wish I didn't have to prepare this message because then I have to actually do what I say I think we should do. And uh, I was in the middle of working on a project that was taking all day, and I got a call that, that you know, Jen's like, hey, I'm about 15 minutes away, I forgot something, can you bring it to me? You first, not me first. And I'm like, ah. then I'm, Romans 12, 10 goes through my mind. Okay, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Like, if that is what God wants, and I'm in the middle of this project right now, and my wife, who I've committed to love, right, to the death, right, says, can you bring me something I'm 15 minutes away? What's my response? I'm like, no. I'm in the middle of something. No, it's like, okay, I need, here's that intersection. Because my, my instinct is like, let me finish. I'm already like sweated through my shirt. Let me just finish the project, shower, and come bring it to you. But no, you need it now. I'm going to get Okay. You first, not me first. The constant interchange. The constant interchange. If you're in school, right? Like the instinct in school is, you know, when I get to school, who do I, who do I see? You know, maybe you're dating someone and hopefully you get there early enough. You can walk around the halls and see your boyfriend or girlfriend or someone you hope will be your boyfriend or girlfriend later on. And, but, but at the same time, you walk in through the halls, and it's like there's some freshmen who have no idea where in the world they're going. And what if it's like, well, well you first, not me first. Like, my, I want to get to see the girl. Right? I don't want to get to see her. I want to get to see the guy. But what if it's like, no, this, this dude is lost. Like, I mean, I, he doesn't know where he's going, so can I, can I help him first? You walk into the cafeteria, and it's like, yeah, you know, I would love to sit with my friends, but what about you first and not me first? You know, what if I think in that way? What does that mean? This constant intersection of fear and faith. If I say you first, I don't get to see my girl before class. If I say you first, I don't get to sit with my friends. If I say you first, I don't get the mashed potatoes. If I say you first, our bottom line this quarter may not work out in business the way it did last quarter. If I say you first, if I say you, if I say you... And yet there's something here in Romans 12 that says, honor one another above yourselves, outdo one another with honor. Now, now, what I mentioned earlier, and I want to finish with this, so if you've been out, kind of zoom back in for a minute. This is to me the most important part of why this matters to me. 
The church doesn't exist, okay? The church doesn't exist to, to dispense morality, okay? The church doesn't exist to dispense morality. So I don't want you just to be here and be like, hey, here's a good moral teaching. Here's a way just to be kind and good. Here's a way to be nice. If you don't even follow Jesus, if you don't even believe the Bible, the things that I've said this morning are probably a good idea for you to try anyway. You will probably, you will probably advance further in your career. You may even make more money. You may even be a nicer person and get the date that you want if you just actually live that way with a you first, not me first thing. This is just utilitarian. It's just practical. It actually makes sense. But it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to Christian values, the principle alone. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I want you to understand why I teach on this and why I believe that this idea of selflessness is tied to Jesus and the teaching of the church, not just tied to a collective morality. Because when Jesus came, he did something so selfless that it set in motion the way that we should think about how to relate to one another, not just because we want to be moral or ethical, but because we want to be like Jesus. So he asks the question, Paul was writing this, and he kind of asks the question you know, and, and answers it this way. He says, so in your relationships with one another, so in the way that you relate to one another, so as you think about who is it that I relate to, he says, Christian, you think about for a minute, think about the people you relate to. In your relationships with one another, I want you to have the same mindset. I want you to think the same as Christ Jesus. I want you to have the mindset of Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He brought to the table all the power of Godness and said, I'm going to leave it here and I'm going to think about you first. I could get in the front of the line and no one would argue with me because I'm God. I could do it my way and no one would argue with me because I'm God. I have all the advantages of being God. And I'm going to take all of that knowledge and power and influence and reputation that I have, and I'm going to set it to the side first. And I'm going to think, what do you need? What do I need to give to you? And he goes on to write this way. Rather, instead of that, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Christian, if you're a Christian, I don't tie this to morality. I don't tie this to ethics. I don't tie this to being nice. I tie this to Jesus. Because Jesus changed the game. He changed the game for how you are a brother or a sister in your home, how you're a son or a daughter. He changed the game for how you relate to your spouse. He changed the game for how you run your business. He changed the game for how you relate to one another in your neighborhoods and how I relate to one another in my neighborhoods. And I don't want you to think you first and not me first just because I want you to be kind. I do don't mind if you're kind. I want you to think you first, not me first, because that's what Jesus did. That's how God set this up. He said, I'm going to send my son Jesus to put you first. You first. Whatever you need. And every little micro decision that comes along my path and comes along your path today, tomorrow, is going to demand, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust that it's worth giving up part of your bottom line to help your employees? Are you going to trust me that it's worth giving up your day to go help your spouse? Are you going to trust me that it's worth 
taking that desire to sit on the couch and relax and put that to the side and help your spouse? Are you going to trust me that it's worth giving up seeing your girl before class to help the freshman who has no idea what's going on? Are you going to trust me? You're going to give up some of the things that you want? Because selfishness reinforces fear. Oh, I better get mine. But selflessness reinforces faith. Reminds us that God is in charge. And his example of sending Jesus is a game changer for us. So, I want to encourage you to think. You first. You first. My family, my relationships, school, work, church. You first. And see where that will take you in every little place of your life. Now, next week, in Trust Me Part 3, I want to talk about how we can make sure that we know that we are making the right decisions and doing the right things and where that all comes from. I look forward to having you back next week for Trust Me Part 3. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning to step into your word again and see, honestly, from a bad example, what it looks like to see the impact of selfishness and fear-based living play its way through all the way to the next generation. And so I pray for us that we would be men and women who can have the courage and intentionality to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do now today with this? How should this impact my marriage and my business, my future, my days, my habits, my priorities, the way that this day, this season unfolds, the way that I serve my children, the way that I impact those around me? I pray that you would give us the courage to be people who are you first. People not just because we want to be nice, but because we want to be a little bit more like Jesus every day. So we thank you for your love and your care for us. We pray for your direction going forward now. It's in Jesus' name we pray.